0: Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Louther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast, where every episode is exciting because we always have great guests and great topics. Of course, I'm your host, as always, Adam Lowther. And today we have not just one, but two of the best weapons physicists in this great land of ours. Of course, you may already know them. Charlie Knockley and Mark Herman from Los Alamos and from Lawrence Livermore. Mark is the program director for weapons physics and design and weapons and complex integration. And of course, Charlie is the associate laboratory director for weapons physics at Los Alamos. And they both have big jobs and they've spent, you know, two decades, more than two get decades for both of you on the weapons side and the physics side. Uh, so, welcome into to NucleCast.
1: Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, really looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, so this is actually, it's it's great to have both of you. So we have the two main weapons physics labs represented here. And for me as an Air Force guy, you know, most of my career, I've spent a great deal of time uh, at Lawrence Livermore. And then having, you know, run the, the School of Advanced Nuclear Turn Studies down at Kirtland, Spend a lot of time up at Los Alamos, uh, especially at Paarito. And then after a day of skiing, you always go to Bathtub Row Brewing Company. How else could you end the day? So Absolutely. Uh, it's both, both great places to live and work. So with that, let's talk about the future. We have, you know, we've got two peers, which is, you know, it's something new. We've got a Russia that, has the potential for breakout, you know, with its suspension of new start, and then with its massive and varied low yield tactical nuclear weapons capabilities. And then with China developing a program that, you know, we expect to be a peer uh, of ours on the strategic side. And then, you know, I, I see less on their specific, you know, low yield and tactical weapons. That's an area where I think there's some questions still. And so you guys are tasked with building the capabilities that help us to deter those adversaries, not to mention a, a North Korea that's building a much larger capability, both strategic and tactical. And then we've got an Iran that's on the verge of breakout. So as we look at all of the threats for sitting in your positions, What are you guys thinking, uh, you know, sort of what's keeping you up at night? How are you processing these these challenges? What are you thinking about doing to address those challenges and concerns?
2: That's a great great intro, Adam, and a great set of questions. You know, if you look at, um, you know, policy documents like the National Defense Strategy and the Nuclear Posture Review, you know that have been put out recently. They really emphasize, you know, the points you've made about the the challenges of the security environment we're facing, the changes in the security environment, um, you know, the modernization <clears throat> and expansion of, of of Chinese nuclear capabilities, Russian nuclear threats to the U.S. homeland, to allies, partners, and the like. The whole spectrum, just as you pointed out. Not to mention, you know, now there's a major land war in Europe for the first time since World War II. Right, so. Um, so that's a very complex situation and, and it's changed dramatically, uh, over the past, you know, 25 years, since the, uh, 30 years, since the end of the cold war in response, right. The country ha- does have a, a, a comp- complex and significant modernization program that it's undertaking right now. We're trying to do a lot. I think you had, um, general Stacy Hughes on one of your podcasts and she kind of laid out, you know, the. The scope of the challenge uh, and, the, and, the, and the work that we're undertaking as a country. So, so that's a big uh, effort, and uh, we're trying to apply, you know, the most modern research, technology, development, engineering, and so forth to that to that effort. We also have a big effort in terms of stewarding the stockpile we have, the existing stockpile. That's a that's a big and important issue. Um, that requires a ton of of, uh, of specific technological and physics and computational and experimental science expertise material science expertise and the like but that's not all the, the that's not the entire scope of the challenge right we have to be also ready ahead of evolving threats and be ready to meet them right we're not going to be able to predict necessarily everything that, that comes down the line so we've got to, to have a stance that that enables us to uh, to meet them effectively for the country provide options for the country but the foundation of all that is, is stockpile research, technology, engineering, and science, right? That's that's the that's the work that we've been doing for the last, you know, more than 25 years as part of the stockpile stewardship program, and that's going to be the foundation of of all of these efforts um, in terms of getting ready, you know, executing the modernization program of record, getting ready for the future, stewarding the existing stockpile.
1: Yeah, I just add um, I kind of look at this through a a few lenses. One uh, right now we have an aging stockpile that that is the foundation of our deterrent. And so, you know, every year we we uh, do a very careful and thorough study uh, supporting the annual assessment of that stockpile. And, you know, that's getting more and more challenging as the stockpile ages. Um, But it's critically important because that is the thing that is deterring uh, our adversaries today. And so we can't ever lose focus on that. Right. And then on top of it now, we're in the midst of five, you know, either new or modernization programs, life extension programs um, that we are we're uh, having to. reconstitute capabilities that we haven't really had in in the post- Cold War era and uh, you know we have to manufacture things in different ways we have to use different materials we have to meet different you know evolving requirements like new delivery platforms or new um, uh, challenges on the stockpile of target sequence and so so that's driving us uh, our STE capabilities to you know kind of meet that challenge um, while we have to maintain this aging stockpile, uh, and and while we're doing that, we've got the whole production complex that we're we you know didn't invest in for almost thirty years that we're trying to reconstitute. Uh, and, and again, we want to reconstitute that in a way that um, gives us the most flexibility for the future. So we're we're trying to use. You know the most modern manufacturing techniques we can use, not just the techniques that we used when we were making the stockpile that we have today in the in the 1970s and 1980s. And so that's driving a, a need for you know our a focus on uh, STE and and uh, our ability to help inform those choices. And then we look at all that, and um, unfortunately, it just takes us too long to respond. Right, right now our modernization programs take you know 12. 14 years to put something from, you know, beginning of the concept to put it into, into, you know, initial operating capability. And I think it's been widely recognized that that is not going to, that pace will not deter our adversaries in the future, especially as they're innovating on a, on a, on a pretty rapid timescale. And so uh, I, I think the whole complex is thinking about how do we how do we go faster in the future? And and a big part of that is, are, are, you know, do we have the ideas. Do we have the concepts? Are we ready to go? Should someone come and ask us and say, hey, we've got a gap in deterrence here. This is the capability we need. We have to be ready with the, you know, potential answers. And so, our, you know, we got, you know, a big part of uh, of what we're doing right now is thinking about those things so that we're ready to kind of be able to plug that gap and try and shorten that time so we can respond. Uh, so it's a, it's incredibly uh, exciting time and incredibly challenging time. Um, and a lot, a lot riding on it. So,
0: so if you were to, to sort of rank order your greatest sort of challenges or needs, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, talent, whether it's the infrastructure, whether, how, what would you sort of prioritize and why would you prioritize? What are those, you know, sort of challenges as you see them?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, that's a really, a good question It's a really hard question because, uh, you know, uh, we, there's, there's really not one part of this where we can let, you know, let it drop right uh we can't take our eye off of that uh, aging stockpile we can't uh not deliver the 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 current stockpile and we have to be thinking about you know uh, the current stockpile modernization programs we got to be thinking about the future um so an overarching need i think is a is that is a stable workforce um and uh you know a workforce that's gaining experience that's as we've ramped up um, we've done a lot of hiring as we've been able to hire great folks right uh, um, uh, in, across the board at every one of the sites in the complex, the, the biggest demographic is the kind of the folks with zero to five years of experience, right, uh, um, uh, which is great that we've been able to get those get them uh, into the into this uh, important mission. Uh, I my biggest worry is how do we keep them, right? Uh, Are we going to keep them here for, for, you know, long careers? That's been the history of this program is we've been able to keep people uh, for 20, 30, 40 years of, you know, some, (laughs) as much as 50 years uh, in this, uh, in the, you know, kind of, because they're so uh, connected to the importance of what, what we're doing and, um, you know, we're, it's a more, more dynamic world today. And so will we be able to keep them? How do we make sure that they, you know, we give them the opportunities, the challenges, uh, support them so that this is, this is how they want to spend their careers, right? That, that's the thing I kind of, of, the, of all the things I worry about, that's the one I, I worry about the most right at the moment.
2: So, yeah. You know, I often, I often get this question about, well, what's your priority? And, um, you know, to, to drive a car down the road, You can't do it on just one wheel you can't say my wheel is my priority my my driver's (laughs) side front wheel is the priority right you need all the wheels you need an engine you need a steering wheel and so forth and i think we're kind of in that situation um and so i totally agree with mark's with mark's uh emphasis on workforce that really is it people ideas start in people's heads right and that's that that's always the place that you start and it takes a long time to learn this business you know to 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 make a, a weapons designer takes more than a few years um worth of mastery study mastery practice experience doing experiments understanding these how these systems work and so forth it's it's not a you know it's not a one year in and then you're productive right so it's a long term investment in people
0: yeah it's a it's a good point cuz i'm not sure how if most people realize that you know with the exception of maybe the program there's a program at the Naval Postgraduate School and a program at at uh, the Air Force Institute of Technology your civilian academic programs are not training physicists and nuclear engineers to be weapons designers right. that, that's so you've got to take somebody who has a you know a physics background or a oftentimes a you know a reactor focused background and turn them into You know, weapons physicists and engineers, which, as you just said, is it's not that fast of a. So, do you think that the is civilian academia producing sufficient numbers of quality candidates? And I I asked this because I was talking to one of the nuclear engineering departments, the faculty yesterday, about their program, and it seems that there's a consolidation of programs into a, a fewer. Big departments. But it it's also given that, you know, American students, native-born Americans, the kinds that can get a Q clearance, tend to want to be social influencers. And, you know, like communications is the single most widely granted degree in, in universities today. Uh, and so therefore, we've had a large influx. When I went to graduate school, all of my peers in the Ph.D. program were Chinese nationals, but they can't come work in the weapons complex. So do you are is there a big enough pool of people that you can draw from as you're trying to go out and recruit these folks who are fresh out of school? Is there enough of them to to sort of meet all your demands, all, all your needs?
2: I, I think the short answer is no. <laughs> We, you know, the good thing is American uh, graduate schools and universities are the best in the world, right? Sure. Yeah. In fact, the best from around the world come to be educated in our graduate schools and get PhDs at, at our programs. So that's a good thing. The bad thing is we're not, ha- we don't have enough American citizens going into these fields. We just don't, into the STEM fields. And we need more. Um, we need, I think, kind of personally, the national emphasis on that that we had after Sputnik, Right. Sputnik, you know, generated a whole generation of American scientists and engineers, a couple of generations, um, that really powered us. And I, I think we we need we do need more US citizens going into STEM fields for graduate degrees. That would be a very good thing to have.
0: And are you guys either one of the labs doing much in terms of cause it's often people choose careers based on what they're influenced by, you know, when they're young. Like I've got a twelve year old son. And my 12 year old son, you know, has seen me spend a career with the military and, you know, so he's already decided I want to go be, uh, you know, a nuclear ET and I want to re- run a reactor, you know, on a, on a ballistic missile submarine. And then I want to get out and I want to get a nuclear engineering degree. And, and, and he knows sort of what he wants to do. And he's just by observation and, you know, things that he wants to be like his dad. And so I I wonder, as we think about trying to influence that American generation, like the race to the moon and, you know, you know, that whole era built all of these great scientists and then the Manhattan Project drew in a bunch of young folks. What are we doing today to try to inspire 12, 14, 15 year olds nationally?
1: It's a great question. I do think we are, um, you know, there is a lot of effort to do that outreach early because I think you're exactly right that kind of you, you want to set the bit as early as you possibly can. And so we think about things like, you know, uh, we have a science on Saturdays, which is kind of targeted towards elementary school people talking about all the cool science going on at the laboratory. And then we, you know, think about high school students and can we get internships for them and then, you know, college students and, and, and get them into um, uh, into the lab and have a summer here. Right. Uh, and then that kind of can and all of those things can kind of change the trajectory of someone, you know, just one good experience. Right. Can make a big difference in, in how people um, uh, you know, uh, choose to, you know, pursue their careers. And so that's something we're very actively working on. I think the other thing is that there's a lot of untapped potential where, you know, because of the, the way the history, right. Uh, you know, we don't have as a diverse, uh, a workforce as we could. Right. And that's, that's basically talent sitting on the sidelines because, you know, the messages have come down, you know, Oh, you know, if you, if you know, if you're, you're this type of person, you don't do science or you don't do engineering or you don't do that. And so we're we're also trying to really broaden that aperture and be much more uh, aggressive in, in reaching out and kind of showing that, you know, in, that everyone can do this work. And it's, it's really a, a fulfilling career and things like that. So I think there there are efforts in that regard. But I think we still have a it takes a long time from the beginning of the pipeline to the for them to get out of the pipeline and, and you know, solve our workforce needs. So.
2: That's, that's right. And you can't start too young, in my opinion. And one way you start is by making science cool. There's almost nothing cooler than science. It is it is a blast, right? So you look at last year, it was an amazing year for a big science in the United States of America, right? Two huge things happened last year. One was the James Webb Telescope, right? What an amazing achievement. There's nobody else who's putting out a big telescope out at a Lagrange point. I mean, first time I've had people ask me what the heck is a Lagrange point my entire life, right? Um, and then the second thing was ignition on the national ignition facility at Mark's place at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. That was an amazing decadal achievement, right? And so. Those things are cool and um, those things are going to attract the interest. I can tell you, they're going to attract the interest of young people of all ages and all backgrounds. And and we should be proud of those and celebrate those and put those out as, as, as things that, Hey, you know, we want, we want you guys to get involved and doesn't this look interesting, right? I think they have a strong, attractive power.
0: Now we're at that time of the show where we have to take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to shift topics and talk about science-based Stockpile stewardship. So, listeners, hold over from our quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the AmLaw Deterrent Center whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Back of course, I'm Adam Lowther, and we're talking to Charlie Knockley and Mark Herman, and we're about to shift. If you've been listening to the first part of the show, we're shifting to science-based stockpile stewardship. Now, let me play devil's advocate, and of course, there are many who would say, "Well, you know, we haven't tested in over it's been three decades, and we've got all this new technology." And we can't quite know for sure whether it works or, you know, being in a weapon over time, what happens to these, these parts. And so, therefore, we just need to test because that's the only way we can know. All of the, comp- the modeling that you do with high-performance computing is great and useful, but there's only one way to know for sure. So, h- how would you guys respond to, you know, these and and other sort of typical challenges to our current approach to making sure our weapons work.
2: Let me start by just telling you the basic approach as to how we address any problem. And this was true during the testing era and has been true in the post-testing era for the last 30 years. There's basically only three tools available to do science, theory, experiment, and simulation of all types right those are the basic tools that we have um, and I split up theory and simulation only because for modern you know modern understanding of theoretical physics is always instantiated in terms of computation and computational simulation and I think that's enough to merit a separate a separate pillar um, what's happened in stockpile stewardship over the past you know 25 to 30 years has been not that we've thrown away the test nuclear test data that we have, not by any stretch. We have a tremendous archive of invaluable, irreplaceable nuclear test data that forms a a strong foundation of our experimental knowledge, right? Going forward. Um, But we've tried to shift the balance away from um, having to get new nuclear test data away towards better computation and more um, resolved and refined uh, experimentation um, above ground at big facilities, places like like NIF and like dart and then upcoming there's the enhanced capabilities for subcritical experiments in Nevada and so forth so that's been the balance that stockpile stewardship has 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 achieved successfully for the last thirty years um, so the pro we also conduct a very strong Surveillance program of the stockpile, as Mark alluded to, every year as part of our annual uh, assessment process, we have surveillance programs. We're we're looking at seeing what's happening in the stockpile. We're doing experiments on that. We're developing models, theories, simulations, and so on to model it. Um, and and so for the pin, again, the past 30 years, that's been that has been successful in maintaining the certification of of all of the weapons in our stockpile. Uh, that is also going to be successful for uh, all of the modernization programs that we have underway. Um, and so when people, it, it's certainly true, and I've never denied that nuclear testing gave um, uh, uh, tremendous, um, invaluable information. It did. There's no question about that. Um, but the ability to shift to, while maintaining that test database and adding to it more and more detailed experimental information and computation that was literally inconceivable during the testing era, right? That's the new balance. That's the way in which we've maintained the stockpile and are conducting our modernization work.
1: Yeah. I just to add that, I mean, you know, again, the the, the advances in the stewardship era have been unbelievable you know the the computing capability um when we get to exascale computers uh, when i started we were we were racing towards terascale computers right so that's a factor of a million increase in our capability to, to simulate what's going on and um and then add in our ability to actually do experiments and uh, take apart the problems that we didn't, we never were able to do while we were doing testing, right? And I think another important thing to, to keep in mind is when we were testing, it wasn't, it wasn't like we were, you know, it, it was rare that we were actually taking, you know, things from the stockpile, putting them underground, and, and doing a test. Most of the stockpile was developed without, without that capability and without uh, specific tests just for you know, everything that in, in the stockpile, right? And so we were always having to extrapolate in terms of our um, our understanding of the weapon, how it would work on the stockpile, the target sequence, what it might encounter, all those things. So we've always had that foundation of um, computation, experimentation, extrapolation based on, you know, again, that over 1,000 tests. And then as we've gotten better and better computer capabilities, better, better experimental capabilities, we've been able to maintain confidence. And that's something we take, you know, uh, incredibly seriously each year that letter signed out by our lab director saying that the stockpile is, you know, safe, secure, and effective, uh, and reliable is a, is a, is something we spend a lot of time working on and, and lots of eyes go on that to make sure we're, we're in that place. And so I feel, you know, strongly that we're, we're in a, a, as good a place today as we were at the end of tasting. And in fact, we've learned more since then, uh, and, and feel like we're in a better place today
0: so and so the you know the experimentation that you are doing it's 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 much more granular if yeah and it's it's you know you're answering very specific slivers of a question that are sort of filling in these seams and gaps that that you you know had one of the questions that i've wondered and perhaps you can answer it is is the effects on new components that you as you know we don't build new warheads we modernize warheads but as you put in replace components and maybe that you know it's because so much of our industrial base that built these original weapons is gone so therefore we're not putting exactly the same components and they're new components and maybe they're made with new materials they're structured differently how do we exactly know the effects uh on those components as they're you know a part of a warhead that there's things going on inside that warhead over those you know over the periods how what what kind of testing or experimentation or or simulation do we do to get at those kinds of questions
1: that's a great question and i think you know from the very beginning of stewardship it was recognized that um, we needed experimental access to the regimes that are important for for our weapons and over which they operate right and so that led to you know uh, investments in capabilities like like dart at los alamos where we can actually put components in subject them to high explosives and and see how they deform and and implode right Uh, and then pick a picture a snapshot of what that looks like at at the critically important time Uh, So we do a lot of, uh, for instance, explosive hydrodynamic testing to support our modernization programs when we have to change out materials or change out components, right? And then in the high energy density regime, when, you know, after the explosives operates, then things, you know, they get really hot and they get to really, really high pressures, right? And so we have... Three different experimental facilities, the the National Emission Facility Charlie mentioned here at Livermore, the world's most energetic laser, the Z-Pulse Power Facility at Sandia, which is the world's largest um, uh, pulse power facility, uses electrical currents to create extreme conditions, and the Omega Laser at the University of Rochester. Um, And so we use those to kind of create as close as we can to the conditions in, in our operating weapons so that we can study... Uh, how a different material might behave at the, those extreme conditions or how um, complex geometries might evolve and things like that. And so, again, we use that then together with this super advance in, in computational capabilities um, and other major testing of, um, you know, how the weapon's going to, survive. And, you know, if it's shaped, rattled, or rolled, if it's under a lot of G-forces, if it's uh, has a hostile encounter. So there's just an entire suite of experimental capabilities backed by simulations that we use whenever we have to change out um, uh, or even keep in an aging component, right? So.
0: Charlie, did you want to add to that?
2: I would just say, I mean, Mark gave a great summary of of, of the approach. And I would only add that when you're considering think of yourself considering a system ahead of you, and you try to shift the risk on that system to areas you can test, right? And and put the risk away from areas that are harder to test, right? And and you build in lots of of, of margin and safety factors as well, right? So there's a there's a judgment call in all of that. Um, Um, and then you, 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 you you basically try to stack the deck as much as possible, right. In order to enable you to make the maximum benefit of the computational experimental tools that you have at your disposal.
0: Now we're almost out of time. So I want to give you guys a chance. If, if hypothetically, you know, I were to give you each your, uh, magic lamp that you could rub to make three wishes. What what would those three wishes be for each of you and your labs and what you're trying you know to accomplish, given you know the world we live in now? What what would you wish for, Mark? You want
2: that's a very interesting question. So uh, I would you know I would say I would come back to the workforce. I, I do. I would I would wish for a much more dedicated focus in this country on, on the STEM fields from kids in grade school, right, and beyond, and, and all the way through, right? That, that would be at least one wish I would have, because I, I do think that is the foundation um, of the nation's competitive strengths in, in our field and in all of others. And I, I, I do worry that we just don't have enough people going into, into science, engineering, and mathematics. So that's at least one wish I would I would make.
0: What would be your first wish, Mark?
2: I I think it,
1: it would be. How do we how, how can we go faster? How do we change? So, you know, uh, you look at the time it took to put the modern the stockpile we have today into the stockpile and it took on average something like six years. Right, and I mentioned earlier, it takes us now twelve to fourteen years, right? And that's even though we know more and we have better tools and we have, you know, so so, you know, and what I see has evolved is this kind of risk avoidance, right? Risk, you know, a fear, a failure, fear to take risks, and and it's kind of in some it's so insidious because it's like it comes in everywhere, right? Uh, and and you know so. But to me, that's the biggest thing that's changed, right? At that time, they were putting things in the stockpile, and if they put something in and had to take it out, they did that, right? And they were, you know, there was a, there was, it, it, it we had, you know, essentially existential threats that were driving that, uh, that, you know, our, our, our tempo at that time, right? And so, so somehow, what I would wish for is a, an ability to kind of, you know you know, not take careless risks, but get back to that place where we can respond on the time scale that's required. Uh, and that, um, unfortunately I think a wish is, I, I, you know, a wish may be needed because right now it feels <laughs> like, you know, there's just, there's just, uh, yeah. uh, even though we've had many commissions and many studies and all that things, right. Uh, it, it, it just, we can't we, we can't overcome that challenge right at the moment. Uh, we we're People are working on it really hard because we know it's, it, it's greatly important, but it is the thing that I wish for. So. How
0: about you, Charlie? Wish number
2: two. Oh, wish number two. Well, yeah, I, I'm certainly with Mark on that wish. Um, you know, there's no law of physics or even economics that I think says we have to spend all of the time that we do. So uh, on a lot of these issues, um, I guess wish number two is I um I wish that we would uh, do, this is going to sound a little odd, but wish we would do more things in the real world and fewer things in the digital world, if that makes any sense, right? We need, we need a much greater pace of experimentation, for example, on the, on the facilities that we do have and getting the new experimental facility capabilities up and running. We just need, again, we need to go faster. We need to, to get Mother Nature's vote on things um, much more quickly than we do um and and get that kind of feedback loop going because that's what you know the great people we have coming into our program you know they really want to they really want to get out and do stuff right and so they really want to get that experiment done they want to get that data they want to get that feedback and and start to grapple with mother nature and so so i think um you know enabling them to do that is one of the key tasks on on my plate and on i think on mark's plate as well right in terms of you know, giving our people that, that opportunity. And wasn't
0: that how, you know, if you go back to the early days of, of physics, you know, you had a theoretical physicist, he has an idea, she has an idea, then they turn it over to an experimenter, they build the experiment, they test, and then we see, is it true or not? And so exactly. Yeah. How, How about you, Mark? Wish number two.
1: Yeah, so I don't know if I get to count uh, Charlie's <laughs> wishes uh, as well. I mean, we get three wishes are three because, uh, uh, you know, all the things he mentioned are things that I, I would wish for. I would definitely, uh, on the workforce, I completely agree that uh, because, again, uh, the competition, um, you know, we, we see the effects, right? The effect is, you know, uh, uh, adversary capabilities that are, you know, uh, being put in the field much faster and and. and And even even surprising us. Right. The underlying thing that enables that is advances in their science, technology and engineering capabilities. That's that foundation that they're building on. Right. So the ultimate long term competition is really a science, technology and engineering competition. And uh, and and the key to that uh, is workforce. And I think it is, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, of course, um, people. Born in the U.S., who are critically important, but we, of course, are, have a legacy of um, from the very beginning of the Manhattan Project, benefiting exactly. tremendously yeah. for people coming to the country and uh, becoming citizens and and helping keep our, our 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 nation great. So I think it's I think both of those things, you know, kind of uh, um, um, and and that then also points to the importance of our allies, right? Because you know kind of it, it's a it's going to take of all. We alone, the U.S. can't do this alone, right? We need that workforce across, not just us, but our, our allies, those strong partnerships. And, and again, in that STE area, um, critically important.
0: So. How about a third, Charlie, a third wish? Because you only get three.
2: All right. Yeah. My third wish is that we spend a little more time than we do now on focusing on great things, doing big great things, right? Again, I, you know, I refer to things like James Webb and Ignition on NIF and so on. Those were great things and they're risky things. You're not sure you can do them, right? And you have to work really hard to make them happen. And, and, you know, those were things like when Kennedy said, I'm going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, right? That sort of thing. Those are the things I think that, that built this country, right? That inspired so many people from around the world to come here and, And I know that very deeply on a very deep level from my own experience, my own family. Uh, You know, and that's that's what's going to that's what's going to drive the innovation that the country is going to depend on uh, as we move forward in the future.
0: Mark, your final
2: wish.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. This is going to sound Pollyanna ish and I don't want it to. But I think I mean, obviously, it would be even better to live in a world that where we can avoid these, these conflicts, we can find a pass path, you know, um, successfully to, uh, you know, um, to a, you know, a stable world, a a world order that is, you know, a free, uh, fair, open, democratic world, um, that that actually, you know, so that the long term, you know, uh, landscape is such that the things that are driving our adversaries are, you know, underlying, you know, a, a desire to to kind of control their populations, uh, to kind of set a world order that is not like the world order that we're advocating for, right? So, um, you know, if, if we could get to a world where that those things actually cost them, and they they can't maintain that that kind of you know control, and and, and you know, our our way of life is recognized, you know, kind of the uh, freedom, democracy. Um, you know, that, that would be, um, uh, you know, maybe that would put me out of a job, but it would be, it would be better to be in a world that, uh, uh, you know, we get, that was like that, right. Until we get there, we obviously have to make sure we're, um, doing all the stuff we're doing, but, uh, um, I would be happy to be put out of a job if, if, uh, if, if that's what it meant. So
0: Charlie Knockley, Associate Laboratory Director director for Weapons Physics at Los Alamos and Mark Herman. Program Director, Weapons Physics and Design, Weapons, and Complex Integration. Thank you both for joining us on Nuclecast.
2: Thanks, Adam. It was a real pleasure. Yeah,
1: it was a lot of fun. Thank you,
0: and thanks to you, the listeners. And we will see you on the next episode of Nuclecast. Well, afterthoughts. Uh, that was a great discussion with two the you know guys who lead the weapons physics programs at the two main design labs. Now, you know, it's, it's always, a uh, you have to be careful about, you know, getting in too much detail about specific programs because of classification. So therefore we had a great discussion about what is going on at that, you know, 30,000 foot level. Uh, in the labs and in the programs and in, you know, a discussion about stockpile stewardship. And I thought Charlie made a really sort of an interesting point, particularly for non-lab folks about, hey, well, there's three things we're going to do, theory, experiments, and, and simulation. And then if you put things in those contexts, uh, then it makes a lot of sense to sort of why we do what we do. And you can put testing, or you can put, you know, the stock science-based stockpile stewardship, all of that in that context, and and make it work and fit. So that was, you know, that was really interesting and good. And then just to hear, you know, similar lab perspectives, because you know the labs have competed, you know, all, over the last five decades, and so it's interesting to hear one lab versus the other, and they they really seem to be, you know sort of in a we're all on a, a similar page you know all going to have different cultures and different approaches but it was really interesting to see how both mark and charlie saw things and what their big issues were so that was great this has been a production of the anwa Deterrence center our executive producer is kimberly cherrington and this episode has been engineered and mixed by david Grunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or
2: wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.